0: If you, uh, especially for families um, with children, if you're here, uh, if you want this, I have one book. So first person gets it. Uh, so after the service, come up and see me, and it's yours. I uh, really want to encourage you to think about how you do family worship at home. Uh, this is a resource, and if you get it and you do it, um, let me know what you think about it, and I will... As I read through it, let you know what I think of it, too. Uh, but really want to encourage you as a family, how do you do that? Because I know it can sometimes seem kind of scary or intimidating or how do we do this? Uh, it's a resource. That's all it is. It's a resource to help navigate how to do that. So I want to encourage you there. Um, we are going through a series that started in January, going all the way to uh, Revelation from January. In Genesis, we started, we're going to Revelation. Uh, I think we'll be done in the latter part of April. And we, uh, we're in Isaiah today, so if you want to go ahead and have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 52. Now, one of the things that I was doing in the beginning of this series is I was recapping the gospel story, like where we're at in the story every week. And then I saw, oh, that's no. there's no point in me doing that. Um, there's better point in us doing that together. So I thought we would practice that. Again, so hopefully you're, you're becoming more prepared, and uh, you're ready to go through. So we're just going to start in Genesis 1, and we're going to go to 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 7, which is where we were, 1 Samuel 7, which is where we, 2 Samuel 7, which is where we were last week. And so we're just going to walk through the gospel story as it is. So where do we start in Genesis? Creation and a garden, very true. But before that, we start with? God, and he is, he's good, he's sovereign, he's the cosmic sovereign king who creates everything, and the pinnacle of his creation is man and woman, but man, humanity, Uh, because we're made in whose image? And what does that mean? We image bearers, so what does that mean? We bear forth his image. That's just like repeating the same words in different ways. It's true, but what does it mean? Help me out here. What is it that we do that we image God? We represent him. We worship. Thank you. Thank you. Is that Steve? Bless you, Steve, bless you. (laughs) We worship God. We we image God, we glorify God, okay? And so we all do that, right? What's the problem? Come on, keep going, gospel story. God creates, he creates man in his image, man is to worship him, problem, what's the problem? Sin. Sin, so what do we do now? We worship idols, ourselves, anything but God. So what does God do, Steve? You can't give any more answers, Steve. Okay, you you have to wait. We have to let everyone else. All right. So so what what happens? It's just like mud out here. Like. What does God do to man? Punishes. And how's the punishment? He. Kicks them out of the garden, right? And the garden represents the rule and presence of God. It's the kingdom of God. So man is removed. But before they're removed, before the punishment, there's a promise. What's the promise? A serpent crusher will come. A seed of the woman will come who crushed the head of the serpent. So as man is removed from the garden, there's this hope of returning to the presence of God, Right? So what happens next in the story? It all appears to be terrible. There's a flood. Everyone's sinning. And then God does what? Abraham. Abraham. (laughs) What about him? He what? Abram Abram becomes Abraham. (laughs) This is like my favorite part of the week. I just want you to know this. So awesome for me. So, what else? Okay, Sarah has a baby. Before Sarah has a baby, coven- thank you, Emily. Amazing. Okay, you can't give any more answers now. Either Everyone else needs. So, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and the covenant is that he will make Abraham into a great nation. He will give him land in Abraham. He will bless Abraham, that Abraham will be a blessing to all nations, which means people groups. okay. Very awesome. So now we have God is choosing a people to be his own who will know him and love him. And we make our way through to the end of Genesis where one of, uh, what is it, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. So Abraham's grandson Jacob will now bless his 12 sons. And one of the blessings goes toward Judah. And what's that blessing? The scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. Good job. That was my wife. So proud. So proud. Um, You can't give any more answers either. And so, what that means is that there's a king who's going to come from the line of Judah. So, we have a people, and we know that a people needs a king. Now, the king is going to come. So, that's good news. And now, unfortunately, Israel goes into Egypt where. They lose their um, kind of blessed privilege with Egypt, and they become slaves of Egypt. And we saw they're kind of slaves in this, and they have no hope of redemption until God does something. How does God bring Israel out of Egypt? Passover. Wife, you cannot give any more answers. Hannah, can you, uh, can you keep mom in line? Thank you, thank you. So there's Passover. What was Passover? Sacrifice of a, for the benefit of Israelites. Yeah, the lamb was a substitute, right, for Israel. So every home sacrificed a lamb and that the angel of death would not kill anyone in that home but would pass over and then God brings them out. He has a people now of his own possession. They've been freed through the sacrifice of a lamb. And then we eventually, they go into the promised land uh, and they want a king. They get Saul. Saul's a bad king. Then they get David. David's a good king. And God makes a promise to David. We call this Davidic covenant. And what does God tell David he's going to do for him? going to build him a house. David wants to build God a house, and God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And this house is going to come through who? A son of David. Brian, you can't give any more. You've done good. Isaac, you've done good. No more. So coming through a son of David. So this son is going to build God a house. And house represents the rule and presence of God. And so that's where we're at in the story. We're tracking? Okay, let me just, let me just show you something. You all bought this book. I know it because I handed each of you, like, this book. Um, This is page 77. God created a kingdom, and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who is also the seed of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal seed, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute, the suffering servant. So that's, that's the end of our chapter today. After every chapter, there's a summary, and it's the same summary, just one more sentence is usually added on to that. Um, that's the gospel story. It's unpacking it every day. So I just want to encourage you, um, when we come here, that's the answers we're looking for. I and mean, it's the same thing we just went through, but every week it gives the gospel story, just adding on to it where we're at in the story. So you all have this resource. So just I know you're reading it, um, but there's a point to it. So if you have your books I, about Bibles, not just books, but Bibles, we're in Isaiah 53 today. Um, So, uh, before we read, um, last week, we see that a son is going to come from the line of David, and he's going to build God a house. We just went over that. The house represents the rule and presence of God, uh, and Jesus is the foundation of this house. Remember, we went through all that last week. So, a question I want you to hang on as we go through this message, and we're going to answer it at the end. What does the foundation look like? We're told Jesus is the foundation. What does that mean? What does it look like that Jesus is the foundation of the house of God? I just want you to hold on to that. We're going to answer that in a little bit. Um, Today, our text is going to address a major problem. God redeems his people from Egypt, right? He gives them his law. He gives them a king. They have a land. But are they really following God? No, these kings... Even the good kings don't really follow God. They all have their faults. They all, um, in one way or another, do not follow God. And because they don't follow God, what do the people do? They don't follow God either. And so they often will still do sacrifices, but they do them out of ritual rather than a heart of worship. You know, that's something that we can wrestle with, right? We can come and gather here with the church out of ritual, and we can... Go through the songs and go through the sermon and do prayings, read our Bibles each day. We can do that out of ritual right? or we do it out of a heart of worship. And so, um, so as we're going through the story, we see that we have wicked people, and we, we, these kings aren't really helping, but yet we're told there's a king who's going to come and going to lead his people in perfect righteousness. Um, but here's the second question, and we're going to answer this at the end also. How can a righteous king lead a sinful people in righteousness? How does that take place? How does a a righteous king take sinful people and lead them in righteousness? Uh, I was thinking about that. Isn't that like telling a three-year-old to follow you through a toy store, but don't look or touch at any of the toys? Is that going to happen? No. We have a problem here, and somehow this sin problem is going to have to be dealt with. And this is where Isaiah comes in. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. He comes in about the 8th century. And uh, Isaiah is like a Bible within a Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. How many books of the Bible are there? Look at you. We all know that one. Um, and really, the book of Isaiah contains the whole gospel story within it. Um, and I just on a side note, so I'm going through Isaiah this week. Um, I'm also going through the book of Job uh, in my own uh, Bible reading. I want you to know, I feel like this week I better understood Isaiah and I have better understood the book of Job than any other time I've read them before. I want to encourage you, read your Bibles. I know there's a lot of times when you're reading, and especially sometimes when you jump into these prophetic books, and you're kind of going, man, what's taking place? Do you ever feel like that? And you're just kind of scratching your head, and you're going, I... This is a language that's a little different. We don't really talk like this. Uh, There's so many uh, strange words and and similes and metaphors at times that are used and and imagery. I don't understand what's happening. Um, I just wanna encourage you, pray every time you read. God, help me understand your word. And there's gonna be times that you're you're gonna close and you're gonna be like, I'm not really sure what I understood. And I've done that a lot. And I felt like this week, as I've noticed in passing times I've read Isaiah, that I I begin to understand it more, as I read it this week, it just took on whole new meaning. Like, I felt like I was actually really understanding the story of Isaiah. I don't say that um, there's anything about me, but just regular reading of the Bible will give you greater wisdom of God's Word. So I just want to encourage you. I know sometimes, especially books like Isaiah and the prophets, can be intimidating Keep praying, and God will give you wisdom as you continue to go through there. Um, But here we are. We're in Isaiah. I'm going to read um, from uh, from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. Uh, And so one thing we do here is we stand when we read the word of God. We do so because we believe God's word is like no other. Um, And as you're standing, let me say, we need to understand this chapter. This is one of those chapters you just need to know. You need to memorize Isaiah 53. Not necessarily the chapter, but you need to know this chapter. You need to know where it's at in the Bible. If we don't know this chapter, we don't know why Jesus goes to the cross. Okay? This is huge, this chapter. We need to know this chapter. So we're going to start at the end of chapter 52. Go all the way through 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall, be call, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom now as we look at your word. God, this word, inspired by you, informs us, tells us, the role of this servant. Tells us who this servant is. He's going to come and take our sin. God, help us to understand this text. Help us to understand the gospel today. Help us to understand how it is that we are saved. God, help us to understand our hope and our foundation. God, increase our faith, strengthen our faith, strengthen our boldness today because of our hope and our foundation. God, may our faces be set like flint towards you that nothing would distract us from living for you. As we clearly will see today that you have purchased us through the blood of your Lamb, Jesus. In your name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to walk through this passage. First words we read are, Behold my servant. Let's just pause. Who's this servant? If we're going to understand the passage, we need to know who this servant is. And so, um, beginning in about chapter 42, the idea, this person, this person called servant, is going to be introduced. So I just want to kind of recap a little bit who this servant is so we have a working knowledge. Um, number one, we're going to see this servant is God's people, meaning referring to corporate Israel. Okay, so we're going to see this. If we looked at Isaiah 44, 1, we read, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. So, the servant is referred to, O Jacob, Israel, it's the people of God. Isaiah 49, verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So, clearly, this servant is the people of God. Okay? Okay? Next, we see this servant is an individual, though. In chapter 49, verse 5, we would read this. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So here, the servant's not Israel. It's a person who's going to bring Israel back to God. Well, that's interesting. Interesting. Isaiah 42, let me read this, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights... I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The servant's an individual who's going to bring forth the justice of God. So which is it? Is he an individual or, or is, he, is he a group of people? Um, what we're going to see is that the servant is an individual who represents the people of God. That's what we have here. He's an individual who represents the people of God. In, in our books, hopefully you're reading, in our books, it uses an example. It said King George, with the Boston Tea Party, when the colonists came and threw the tea in the harbor, it says King George is not happy at this. He's mad, he's upset. Now we can take that to mean, yes, King George is upset. Who else is also upset? The British. He represents all of his people. And so when we read the way King George feels or what he does, we're reading what what his people will also do. He represents them. Now is this idea of representation anything new in the gospel story so far? Is this new? No, it's nothing new. Adam is a representative of all of humanity, right? He stands before the first of humanity, and what he does, all people will do. If he worships God, we will all worship God, but he does what? He sins, and therefore, according to Romans 5, all are now sinful. Why? Because of him. Because he sinned, we are now all born sinful. He represents humanity. Abraham is another representative he represents all of God's people this is why in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 Paul will say if you believe in Jesus you are Abraham's offspring to be of Abraham is to be of the people of God Abraham was saved by faith therefore if we are to be saved it will also be by faith just as our representative was does that make sense All throughout the Bible, we're seeing these representative-type figures. So what the prophet wants us to understand is that this servant is an individual who's going to represent all of God's people. And let's just be clear, the servant's Jesus, okay? I mean, you you probably know that, some of you, but if we're not, it's Jesus. Um, Isaiah 42, the passage I just read, Matthew quotes that in chapter 12 of his gospel and totally attributes that to jesus so we see that this this servant that we're reading about is jesus so what else do we know about the servant well in isaiah 49 5 we read that he's going to bring back the people of god right we saw that in verse 5 but if we kept reading in chapter 6 we would read this he says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too easy. It's too little of a thing for you just simply to save Israel. So as we keep reading, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So now we have this servant who's not only going to represent the people of God and bring them to God, but he's going to be a light to all nations that all people groups will be able to come and worship God. What does that make us think of? Go ahead. Interaction time. Where have we heard all nations before? Where have we heard this blessing to all nations? Abrahamic covenant. This side is knocking out of the park up here. We appreciate it. Good job. Abrahamic covenant. So, one thing, real quick, while we're reading the Bible, we need to know covenants. Remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, God always relates to his people through covenant. He always relates to his people through covenant. He always relates to his people through covenant. And so when we're reading, we always need to just kind of keep aware what covenants have been given. How does what we read fit into these covenants? We always need to ask that question. Always need to ask that question. And so here... We're told that a servant's going to come who's going to be a blessing to all nations. So this servant is going to be the fulfillment of what we read many years earlier, I me, mean, a thousand years earlier in the Abrahamic covenant. So how's he going to do that? How's this servant going to be a blessing not only to Israel, but also to all nations? I mean, don't we have this sin problem? Israel's got a sin problem. Everyone else has a sin problem. And yet, he's going to bring us to God. And that's what our passage today is addressing. In chapter 52 and 53, we come to realize that the servant is also a substitutionary sacrifice. He comes as a substitutionary sacrifice. Now then... Is this idea of substitutionary sacrifice new to us in the gospel story? No. Where have we heard this? Please don't answer in these front two rows over here. Pat, thank you. I have that written down. Passover. Passover, which is found in what chapter, Josh? Look at you. Is that in the bulletin? (laughs) It's pretty good, pretty good. Um. And how do you spell? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, exactly. Passover. At Passover, we have the people of God redeemed through a substitutionary lamb. A lamb stood in the place of Israel so that God's wrath would come upon the lamb and what would happen to Israel? They would be redeemed. They would be freed. Listen, redemption always comes through judgment. Do you know that? Redemption always comes through Through judgment. It always does. God never just wipes sin underneath the floor. Sin must always be punished. And because we are sinful, we cannot pay the penalty of sin. And therefore, God, out of his mercy and his grace, provides a substitute. So let's look at who this servant is. Why is he worthy of being a substitute? Who is this substitute? Let's look at this. First thing we see is that he is without sin. He is without sin. In 53 verse 9, we read that he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's holy. He's blameless. In verse 11, we're, we're told he is called righteous. He is the righteous one. If we went back a little bit to Isaiah 55 we were told that he's not rebellious and he never turns backward. What does that mean? It means that he always obeys the Word of God. He never falls away from the Word. He never disobeys the Word. He never takes a detour from the Word. He always follows the Word of God and obeys the Word of God. And remember, from week one or two, I don't remember, I think it's week two, how is it that we worship God? Through Obedience to the word. That's how Adam and Eve were to worship God, and the way they sinned against God was disobedience to the word. The way we worship God is through his word. And so now we have one who, unlike Adam, perfectly obeys the word of God, he's righteous. He's blameless. Remember, remember the lamb in Exodus twelve. What kind of lamb did this have to be? Could it be a three-legged lamb? Could it be a spotted, messed up, defective lamb? A spotless, blemish, blemishless, blemishless, unblemished. Something. Unblemished. He's perfect. He's holy, unlike any other. Possibly at this moment. We're to be thinking, is this the serpent crusher? I mean, we have one, Adam, and all in Adam are sinful, but now one comes. He's perfect. He's got no sin in him. Yesterday, my kids went to a birthday party, and uh, my youngest, uh, well, they were all eating it, but my youngest was eating a bright blue cupcake, a bright blue frost, cupcake with bright blue frosting all on it. And, uh, I mean, it was on his face, it was on his hands, I mean, just like a four-year-old, Right? And just like, and uh, and so he grabs a napkin to clean himself up like every good four-year-old. There's a problem, though. This napkin has bright blue cupcake frosting all on it. So what happens when you take bright blue cupcake frosting napkin and and wipe off bright blue cupcake frosting on your face? You just get a lot of bright blue cupcake frosting everywhere. Um, If he was going to be clean, he needed a clean napkin. When we try to get right before God in our power, it's like us taking this bright blue cupcake frosting napkin and smearing it all on our face. It just does no good. When we're sinful, and through our sinful methods, we try to get clean. Can we get clean? No. We can't be clean. Because everything we touch is sin. Because, Because we are sinful, and this world has been tainted with sin, So if we're going to be clean, we need someone who can actually take this sin away from us. We need someone clean. And that's the servant. That's Jesus. He comes perfect, holy, spotless. And that takes us to our next point. He does so so that he can take upon himself our condemnation. See, Jesus comes on a mission. And his mission is to take our sins and pay the penalty for them. On the cross. And the Bible's clear, we're all sinful. We can go through Romans 3 and a lot of texts where it talks about we are all sinful, we're born sinful, we've rejected God, we've rebelled against God. Because of that, we deserve to be punished. Now it's at this point there's a lot of people who start saying, You know, your God's just not very loving. I mean, he's just not loving because he, he demands this justice and he doesn't like the fact that we're sinful and therefore it has to be punished. And he has this thing called hell, and it's just this horrible thing and so a real loving God would not really punish sin and he wouldn't call us sinful and he wouldn't have this eternal thing called hell um so they conclude that God is unloving that's stupid and that's foolish okay let me give at least two reasons do we we do we as people do we not demand justice when a crime has been committed I mean, if, if someone murders someone else, do we just kind of say, you know, you're not really supposed to do that. Can you try not to do that again, please? Pretty please? Give you blue cupcake frosting. Um, no, that would be dumb if we did that. We demand justice, often life for life, don't we? We demand that there be justice. So why is that strange if God demands justice? Why, why is that strange? And then, God, we see, is the one who sends his son to graciously save us. So here we have a God. He demands justice. And because we've sinned against him, we deserve eternal punishment in hell. So all of us, none of us like that, right? That's a hard message. But then God says this. And I'm going to send forth my son to take your condemnation from you. He's going to take your sin, and because he has your sin, he's going to receive my wrath. So here's a God. He demands justice, and then he sends his son so that he would take our punishment for us. Isn't that amazing? I think David Platt used this analogy. He said, imagine God's wrath is coming at you, and it's a wall of water, 100 miles high, 100 miles wide there's no escaping this, it's pouring at you, it's coming at you, it's about to destroy you, there's no hope you have, then right before you, the ground opens up and all of the wrath of God is swallowed up in this canyon. That's the cross of Jesus. Right before it wipes us out, Jesus stands in our place and he says, I will receive the punishment that they deserve. Does that sound like an unloving God? So listen, when, when we have friends, and oftentimes it is friends that say that, we need to lovingly correct them. We need to walk them through the gospel story. We need to let them see, yes, our God is just, but why is that good? And, and help them see how it's good, and help them see how, they send, how he sends Jesus to stand in our place. And listen, if we're going to tell that to our friends, what do we need to know First? Interaction. What, what do we need to know? The Gospel. You need to know the Gospel. You need, to know, you need to know the Gospel story. Walk them through Genesis to Revelation. Let them see the beauty of the Lamb that was given. Of this suffering servant who comes and stands in our place. So listen, we need to walk them through. Don't just say, oh, okay, you can believe that. No. Now, don't don't throw the Bible at them, but walk them through the story. Help them to understand. Yes, this God God that we worship, He is infinitely holy, and His justice is severe. And yet, He provides a lamb that would completely and ultimately satisfy the wrath of God. Where do we see that? Well, let's read. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. Surely he, the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, this is us, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned Everyone do his own way. So he's saying, Israel, you've all left God. And, and to all of us, all of us have rebelled and strayed away from God. And the Lord has laid on the servant the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is just another word for sin. 53 verse 12, the last part. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen, we're guilty of cosmic treason. We demand, or, and we deserve the wrath of God. And yet, God says, I will send forth my son to stand in your place. He will literally take your sins, your idolatrous hearts, your wicked tongues, your lustful hearts, Your eyes that love to dance around and stare at things that they should not look at. The way we use our our bodies as amusement parks for our own lusts. And God says, I'm going to send my son. He's going to take all of your sins. Literally, take your sins. And those sins are going to be counted towards him. And he will suffer for you. That's what we have here in Isaiah 53. That's what Jesus comes at the cross to do. And we're told, verse 52, verse 14, we read that his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance in his form beyond that of children of mankind. Jesus didn't even look human because of what he went through. His flesh literally was just hanging off of him. I mean, just imagine that. God saying, you deserve my wrath. And his son standing in our place, taking such a punishment, he doesn't even look human afterwards. People just stare and say, my God, what is that? That's the son. And he went through that so you and I could be forgiven. Remember, freedom only comes through judgment. Yes, the gospel is free for us, but it costs the son his life. Don't forget that. Let's look at the next point. This is amazing, this next point. He is acceptable to God. And this is incredibly good news. Jesus came to die for us, and God accepts it. He accepts it. I mean, now think about this. If If I came before God and said, you know what, for Robert, let me stand in the way of Robert. You know, let me take his punishment. Can a sinful person stand in the place of another sinful person? No, I can't atone for anything. I need someone to atone for my own sins. That's why we read in the Old Testament, the priests had to do what before they offered offered sacrifices for other people? They had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they're wicked. We're sinful. So how can a dirty cupcake frosting clean something that's covered in dirty cupcake frosting? This is not going to happen. So Jesus comes. and Jesus just doesn't come. He's accepted before God. So I, I just want us to pause. When's the last time you thank God for sending his son? Like, truly thank God that today you stand at peace with God and you're counted as righteous. When's the last time you just pause and just, God, just thank you? This is what we're going to do. I just want you to take a moment. You have paper. You have pens. You have pencils. Write. Write a prayer of thanks to God. Just just now, I want to encourage you. Write. You probably haven't done it for a while, so your eyes don't need to be on me. Your eyes can be down at the paper. And I just want to encourage you. Write. Write. Just thank you to God. Maybe you just write. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe you write. God, just thank you for sending your son. God, you are my only hope. God, you are so merciful and gracious. Just write. Whatever it is that you want. And then I just want us to take a moment and we're going to pray. Is right. Tell God grateful you are, thankful you are, that He accepts His Son's sacrifice. Father, we praise you. Because you are just and holy we praise you for demanding justice and we humbly praise you and thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in our place so we could be forgiven and be with you forever thank you father thank you father thank you father thank you father father your son is the quenching rain our dry wasted souls need Your Son is the life-giving rays of the sun that give us strength and make us new. Father, may we never take for granted the precious gift of your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. I want to encourage you. Pray to God. And let your prayers be full of thanksgiving to God. Thank him for his son. Um, where do we see this in our text? So important thing. Don't believe it because I say it. Believe it because the text says it, okay? And, and I know a lot of you are military, so some of you are here for a period of time, and some of you are then going to go to uh, another church somewhere else. Um, when you go to that church, don't believe what the pastor says unless he shows it to you in the text. We don't need good opinions. We need the Word of God. So I just want to encourage you, whether you're here, hold me accountable to that. Wherever you go, you'll hold the pastor accountable to that. We don't go to places to hear their opinions and thoughts. We go to gather and hear the Word of God. So where do we see this? Well, Let's go. Verse 6. Chapter 53, we read, God is the one who puts our iniquity on this servant, on Jesus. Verse 10, God is the one who crushes the servant. Do you know that? I told this to someone one time, and they said, man, you don't know your Bible very well. I said, God is the one who killed his son. Yes, he used the Jews, he used the Romans, but they didn't ultimately do it. God killed his son. They said, you don't know your Bible. I said, what else do you get? in Verse 10. God is the one who crushed his son. Just know for, no, son and the father are working together here. The son comes to receive and the father is going to crush the son because of the sin that he has taken upon himself. So how do we know the father accepts it? How do we know that when the father crushes the son that our debt, our sin has been paid for? Let's go to verse five. What have we been given Peace. We were under wrath, but now we've been given peace. And look, by His stripes, we are what? Healed. We're new creations. We're made new. Look at verse 10. What do we see here? He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The New Living translates that. He will have many descendants. So because what Jesus does at the cross, we go from enemies... Of God to children of God To part of the offspring of God look at verse 11 he's made many to be accounted righteous we're unrighteous because of the cross we're now righteous you see how God accepts it he crushes his son so now we have peace now we're healed now we're new creations now we're family and now we are righteous you know what that means When God looks at you, he sees you the same way he sees his son Jesus. And he loves you the same way he loves his son Jesus. Do you know that? He doesn't love you in a different way. You have the righteousness of his son on you. Jesus, we call it the great exchange, took our sin, paid the penalty, and gave us his righteousness. See the exchange? Don't ever mess that up. Know that. Teach your kids that. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. When God looks at you, he sees his son. Isn't that amazing? Do you see why we need to spend time just thanking God at times? Just thanking God. Just thank you, God. Next point. And he willingly stands in our place. Verse 7 and 8. We see that Jesus didn't open his mouth. When he was afflicted, he remained silent. He wasn't saying, look, I'm innocent. Look, I didn't really do this. If we went to chapter 50, verse 7, he sets his face like flint. He resolutely is determined to accomplish the will of God. Nothing was going to distract him. If we go to the Gospels, we regularly see Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I will suffer and die, and three days later, I will rise. And what do the disciples do? Huh? I don't understand what you're talking about. But he keeps telling them, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And why is that important? Well, how is that different than the lamb? Next is chapter 12. What did the lamb do? Did the lamb say, Pick me? Pick me. Guess what? I'm betting the lamb didn't want to die. The lamb's going, Oh man, I don't have any spots. I would love to have spots right now. I wish I was a three legged lamb at this moment. The lamb didn't want to die. He was taken, he was simply chosen, he was brought, and he was killed. But here, we have a lamb who willingly comes to demonstrate the love of the Father. And the love that not only he loves his own glory, but that the love that he has for us. So here in Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we're told that a suffering servant's going to come and bring forgiveness and hope to the people of God and to the nations. So to answer question number two, how can a righteous king lead sinful people in righteousness? By becoming a substitutionary sacrifice for them. That's how. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He becomes a substitutionary sacrifice for us, that then he would lead us in righteousness. So to answer question number one, what does the foundation of God's house look like? Here the house is the church representing the, people, representing the rule and presence of God. In the Old Testament, if we looked at Solomon's temple, we would walk into the temple, and the, the temple was built on stone. And then on top of that stone, there is wood everywhere in the temple. You, you walk upon cypress wood, and the walls and the ceilings are made of cedar. And on this wood, gold everywhere. Isn't it amazing? I mean, just imagine like walking into a room of gold. Like, just Pure gold everywhere. So you're walking on the strength of the stones, the costliness of the wood, the beauty and majesty and magnificence of the gold. What's the response? Wow. Oh, house of God, worship, to be in awe. Here we have a house representing the glory of God, right? But when we come to the house that Jesus built, there's no stone. There's no precious wood, and there is no gold. But there is something much more beautiful, something much more costly, something much more magnificent, something much more mighty, something much more that perfectly reveals the glory of God. Something that we don't just say, wow, but it drops us to our knees, even prostrates us before God, that we would worship him in awe and holiness. What is that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the house of God is the cross of Jesus. It's the grace of Jesus. When we are built upon this house as living stones, we're built upon the cross of Jesus. And there's no other foundation. This is why when some people say, look, you believe in what you want, I believe in what you want, what are you going to stand on when you come before your God? What are you going to stand on? What what worthy foundation are you going to stand on? Because that's that's what they're saying. You, You believe what you want, I'll believe what I want, and when we get there, we're good. No, because one of us is standing on the foundation of the cross of Jesus, the other is standing on the foundation of our unrighteousness. And what's going to happen to that person? Because they did not experience the substitutionary lamb, they will experience the wrath of God in all eternity. We're saved to be built upon the grace of God. Anything else we stand on is like putrid menstrual rags. It's nothing. It's Worthlessness. It has no bearing before God. Jesus is our hope and our foundation. And Because of that, we're reminded every day that we are a people saved not by works, but by the grace of God. We are reminded that our sins have been paid for, not by our ability, but through the cross. We're reminded that we, are, that we were slaves and our freedom only comes through Jesus. We're reminded that we've been saved by grace to be a people characterized by grace. We are reminded that it is through suffering we have experienced God and that our suffering is an amazing way to show others the love and power of God. We could spend a whole nother sermon right there. I just want you to know a lot of times we're going through life and we think suffering is something we just need to get rid of as fast as we can or just avoid at all costs. But do you realize the foundation we stand on was formed out of suffering? The only way we come to God is through the suffering of Jesus. So just be encouraged that our suffering's not worthless. Our suffering's not trivial. God uses the very trials in our life as an amazing way to point toward the cross. As an amazing way. And we could go into a lot more there. Um, That just kind of takes us different ways. But do you know today that your hope and your foundation is Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Do you know When you stand before God, your foundation is Jesus. If you don't know that, I I just encourage you to repent today. Repent and ask for forgiveness. If you do know that, I just want to encourage you to say thank you to God. And live like that. Live in the confidence that your hope is in Jesus. And that's what the world needs to know. So what we're going to do now is we're going to partake of communion. And I love every communion falls perfectly in line with every message. So if you're one of our men helping out, I want to encourage you, go ahead and come forward. Um, Communion, we're celebrating Passover. Not the Old Testament Passover of a lamb that didn't want to die. Of a lamb that couldn't really take away our sins. But we're standing here to take Passover Because of the Lamb of Jesus, the real suffering servant, the one who the Old Testament Lamb pointed towards, the one who perfectly through his death is able to bring about forgiveness for us. And so I just want to encourage, as you hold the bread, as you take of the juice, just do so in thankfulness. We're not going to say a lot this time. We're just going to kind of of give a prayer. We're going to hand it out. We're just going to hand up the next one. Not really going to say much. I just want you to spend the time. You can either just listen to the words and make those your prayer or or just spend time writing um, on the worship guides that you have and just write just how thankful you are to God on what it means that Jesus came and died and that he is our hope and foundation. So just take this time and just worship God. the body of Christ I uh, just take it now and remember it's of Jesus couldn't even tell he was human he gave of his entire life and being to the point of death he held nothing back so that's what this blood that's what this juice so this juice represents this blood that was completely poured out so that his blood was completely poured out God's wrath would be completely satisfied so you and I could have peace with God and stand before him in his presence forever. So do so now and take this in remembrance of Jesus. Father, Father, I don't I don't want to neglect the cross. I don't want to take for granted that God, you accept, you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. God, I pray that you would, God, through the power of your spirit, help me to regularly remember the cross. That I would know that every every breath that I breathe, every action that I take, every thought that I have is in response to the gospel. God, we are a people saved by your grace in Jesus. God, help us to to be a people of grace. Help us to tell people, to tell others about your gospel. Help us to regularly reflect upon your son and what he has done and how that has made us into new creations, how we've been healed by his stripes, that we would live for you and glorify you. God, may we be a people of your word that just as your son came and perfectly obeyed your thought, obeyed you that we would perfectly obey you through your word. God, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.